Hello and welcome to another teaching from 119 Ministries. Our ministry believes that the whole Bible is true and directly related to our lives today. If you would like to know more about what we believe and teach, please visit us at testeverything.net. If you enjoy this video, don't forget to hit the like button and subscribe to our channel by hitting the button down below. We hope that you enjoy studying and testing the following teaching. When one begins to realize that all of God's Word is still truth and nothing has been abolished, it is not long before someone might ask, So, do you stone your children? I have been personally asked this several times, and perhaps you've been asked this very same question. Anyone with any knowledge about the Bible knows that stoning commandments and other capital punishments are indeed part of the Bible. And if we are teaching that all of God's commandments are still valid, then on the surface, this appears a rather logical question, and a rather important question. Some might ask this question with genuine concern. Obviously, no parent should want to stone their own children. Anyone examining God's truth may eventually struggle with this question. The question itself conjures up a serious emotive response in any loving and caring parent. The believer seeking truth will be motivated to understand exactly how God wants us to apply and carry out this commandment. On the other hand, some desire not to seek out the truth and simply reduce the commandment to a twisted form of its intent and application. The goal in such a position is to leverage emotion against the law of God and truth of His Word. Sometimes it is an atheist or agnostic that approaches this issue in this way, and unfortunately, sometimes it is even a professing believer in the Word of God. The question is almost asked in a sense that God is absolutely absurd, if not downright evil, for even offering such commandments. In fact, it would make the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, actually the largest joke. Psalm 119 is all about praising the law of God, which includes, of course, the capital punishment commandments. Thus, anyone criticizing the stony commandments is obviously not compatible with Psalm 119. Whatever the reason someone might be asking questions related to capital punishment in Scripture, this teaching is intended to address all concerns and agendas and point to what the Scripture simply teaches. Unfortunately, many approach God's Word with a law-abolishing theological paradigm, so that makes this issue quite difficult. In this paradigm, God supposedly erased certain random commandments that He previously declared as perfect truth. According to such doctrine, at one time our God was a proponent of capital punishment for certain offenses, and now, he has changed and offers a new approach. In this understanding, basically any commandment that is found in the Old Testament is abolished, unless we can find it directly commanded and taught in certain interpretations of the New Testament. Even though the Lord's Sabbath, feast days, dietary instructions, etc., were all practiced extensively in the book of Acts by believers such as Paul, Stephen, Peter, etc., these commandments are all supposedly abolished. What we are told by theologians, not Scripture, is that those commandments were being practiced out of tradition instead of obedience. Many blindly follow such teachings of men and have never questioned and tested such doctrine to His Word. That is a shame because we are all accountable at the judgment seat in the end for what we believe, not for what we are taught. Quite often, and contrary to what we learn in Mark chapter 7, it is often our own mainstream doctrines that are caught up in tradition instead of biblical obedience. If we are to believe that all Scripture is instructions in righteousness, 
and that not one jot or tittle of the law has been abolished before heaven and earth passes away, then we must believe all commandments are still applicable for God's people. Capital punishment is part of the Word of God and taught out of Moses' seat. Whether we want to admit it or not, this includes the biblical commandments related to capital punishments. So when those opposed to God's truth ask us, Do you stone your children when they disobey? They are often asking because they're trying to appeal to the emotions of a loving parent. But there is an uncomfortable logic at the premise of their question. They are effectively stating, Surely all of the Bible is still not true. Look what you would have to do. The average Christian declares those commandments abolished and removed from the law of God. Thus, this is less of an emotive issue for such a belief system. The atheist and agnostic, being a little more intellectually honest in this case, can see the clear contradiction in such doctrine by actually reading and studying the Bible. They see this as even being a barrier to even believing the Word of God is true. They are not satisfied with the typical mainstream Christian response, nor should they be. Can we address the position of the atheist or agnostic? Are there scriptural answers for those who currently do, or once did, subscribe to mainstream Christian doctrine that teaches certain commandments are abolished as it relates to this subject? How do we approach this subject? Once we begin to reconcile many often avoided mainstream doctrinal contradictions about God's law, we are then forced to realize that the whole law of God is still very much left intact, just as He intended. There are answers if one is willing to invest the time to understand what the scriptures really teach on this subject. There are only two types of people, those with the good seed producing good fruit that are always trying to understand the Word of God the best that they can so that they can apply it in their lives, and then there are those with the bad seed producing rotten fruit that do not desire the Word of God but, at best, desire comfort doctrine that suits their interest in flesh. The unfortunate truth is that the latter is catering to itching ears and turning others away from the Word. Such a teacher will find they actually have much support because Scripture declares that many long for and seek to heap up such teachers. 2 Timothy chapter 4 Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and will turn their ears away from the truth, and be turned aside to fables. This still begs the question, why are there no stonings or other forms of biblical capital punishment today? Well, the average Christian does not even bother with trying to understand the question, because most modern doctrine teaches that such commandments are now abolished. Thus, even attempting to understand how the commandments were to be carried out and who was involved is seemingly a pointless exercise. But what about the believers who believes the whole Bible to still be true? What if we want to actually do what 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 says? What if we want to preach the Word? The Word consists of many commandments that most doctrines have thrown into the trash can, how are capital punishment commandments to be scripturally addressed? There are several mistakes that atheists, agnostics, or mainstream Christians are often making in their premise of their emotionally loaded question. Number one, the criteria required to biblically carry out this commandment. Number two, the process required to biblically carry out this commandment. Number three, the structure required to biblically carry out this commandment. Number four, this commandment is supposedly bad to begin with. 
Number five, our emotions and desires can establish what is truth. The commandment for stoning our children can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 18 through 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city, to the gate of his city. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Immediately we can see that this is more complicated of a commandment than how most think they understand it. It is only after the son rebels against his father and or mother continuously in the face of consistent discipline that the son is brought before the elders. This is not as if a child simply takes a cookie out of the cookie jar without permission that he should be biblically stoned to death. There are parameters and criteria that we need to consider. It is only when the parents decide that their child is not correctable and continuously refuses to walk in God's ways that the situation is elevated or escalated to the elders for review and a decision, which still may not result in a stoning. What is the established process of the elders? There is a court system for all capital punishments that exist at the city gates. The biblical capital punishment system requires a specific governmental structure founded on biblical-based principles and guidelines. There is not a country currently on planet Earth, including Israel, that is currently employing the true biblical structure and process necessary to carry out this commandment. It is these courts, not us directly, that are commanded to carry out the biblical capital punishment cases. As a consequence, all believers are currently subject to the governmental authority of their respective nation, as there is no alternative. The persons biblically mandated and accountable to the capital punishment system currently do not exist in its true commanded form. Thus, there is no group established to be obedient to these commandments. The same issue existed in the first century under Roman rule. Capital punishments required the blessing of both the Roman and Sanhedrin authority to carry out such commandments according to scripture because they were under the Roman government. Israel lost their governmental autonomy because of their disobedience. Several instances of New Testament capital punishment in Scripture were not biblical and actually violated the commandments of God. The stoning of Stephen would be an example in Acts chapter 6 through 7. He was falsely accused of teaching that Yeshua changed God's law. Obviously, Yeshua never taught that the law of God was going to change. Thus, the witnesses were clearly false, as Acts 6.13 says. If Yeshua taught that the law of God was going to change, then they would be true witnesses. The attempted stoning in John chapter 8 would be another example that did not employ the biblical process. They did not seek the counsel of the elders. The structure and process of capital punishment is rather defined in the law of God, the Torah. Deuteronomy chapter 16. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which Yahweh your God gives you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. The cases are to be presented and judged fairly. Only the biblically appointed judges subscribing to God's word are permitted to judge on these matters. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Then I commanded your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your brethren, and judge righteously between a man and his brother, 
or this stranger who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, bring to me, and I will hear it. If there is any reasonable doubt that a person does not meet the criteria for capital punishment, then the case is immediately dismissed. Exodus 23 Keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. Deuteronomy 17 According to the sentence of the law in which they instruct you, according to the judgment which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left from the sentence which they pronounce upon you. In ancient writings, we find that if the Sanhedrin stoned more than two people in a seven-year period, they were considered a bloodthirsty group of judges. It is actually quite difficult to biblically stone a person in capital punishment. It did not happen quite often, and when it did happen, it was always a clear-cut case of someone thumbing their nose at God and rejecting His ways. To ensure valid judging on matters, a detailed witness system was commanded to be employed. The Witness System If we are aware of sin, we are commanded to disclose our knowledge of that sin. Leviticus chapter 5 If a person sins in hearing the utterance of an oath and is a witness, whether he has seen or known of the matter, if he does not tell it, he bears guilt. An investigation process is employed to prove any accusations beyond any doubt. If there is any doubt that the accusations could not be true, the case must be dropped as it is against the law of God to accidentally convict the righteous or innocent. There must be no possible way that the accused is not guilty. Deuteronomy chapter 13 Then you shall inquire, search out, and ask diligently. And if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination was committed among you. All accused are to be treated equally, and all witnesses must be a believer in the word of God. All witnesses are to stick to the facts and not allow themselves to be influenced in either direction by the desires of the majority. Exodus chapter 1. You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. The witness system requires two or three witnesses to establish a matter for any accusation. Deuteronomy 19 One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Hebrews chapter 10 Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. 1 Timothy 5 Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. 2 Corinthians 13 This will be the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. 1 Corinthians 14 Let two or three prophets speak, and let others judge. 1 Corinthians 14.27 If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. Matthew 18 For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. 
At the very least, it should be rather clear that there is much more complexity surrounding the process of capital punishment than most realize. The process is reserved for the biblical judicial system. In reality, carrying out the capital punishment commandments in our current governmental state would actually be breaking the commandments of God, not being compliant with them, because we are not part of the biblical judicial system. Any intellectually honest student of God's word will quickly surmise that such an application of God's commandments is not picking and choosing by any stretch. God picked and chose in advance who is given those commandments, and we are required to respect that. Just as there are commandments specific for men, commandments for women, for children, for farmers, for elders, for priests, etc., there are commandments for the biblical courts. No one can suddenly declare themselves high priest or an elder at the gates, etc., and begin practicing their commandments. That is absurd, and such is the case of capital offenses and the judicial process. This is the heart of confusion. Most do not realize that those practicing the whole truth of the Bible are not refraining from capital punishment commandments because they are picking and choosing what commandments to obey and which ones to supposedly ignore. These commandments are for a specific group of people within the body of a holy nation of Israel that currently do not exist as biblically ordained. The precedent set in Scripture from the beginning is that we submit to the authority of the government and nations we are under as long as doing so does not force us to break the commandments of God as ambassadors of Israel. Just because the criteria might be lacking for the court commandments to function as designed, it offers no biblical support or precedence that we can start picking and choosing other commandments to be removed or abolished. For example, when the first temple was destroyed and the Jews were in Babylon, just because the sacrificial system was forced to be on pause in the absence of a temple did not give them license to profane the Sabbath, delete the Lord's feast days, or declare pig and lobster as food, and nor did they. Just because the biblical court system is not currently established as it should be, it's not a valid excuse to randomly nullify parts of God's law. All of God's law still applies. We just need to apply it biblically. If anyone actually practiced the capital punishment commandments today, they would actually be breaking the commandments of God, not following them. They would be ignoring and breaking the established biblical process given to those who are biblically accountable to enforce and judge on these matters. We are commanded to not do that ourselves, and we are not granted such autonomy. Thus, accusations of not practicing biblical capital punishment as being contradictive to pursuing Torah obedience are merely the result of not doing one's due diligence in understanding his established word. They become false accusations. So unless someone is actually confusing us as a group of judicial court elders, the whole premise of the question is simply not biblical. It is through this understanding of the need for witnesses and the biblically established court system that Yeshua's actions in John chapter 8 became more clear. Some teach that in John chapter 8, Yeshua abolished the commandment of stoning. This, of course, would have Yeshua himself breaking the law of God, thus sinning. So we must ask, did Yeshua sin? If so, he would not then be the perfect sacrifice. We know, of course, he did not sin and was our perfect sacrifice. John chapter 8, But Yeshua went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, 
they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Yeshua stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Yeshua was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Yeshua had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Yeshua said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Yeshua spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Though it happens less often, the story of the adulterer in John 8 is sometimes offered as support that Yeshua abolished God's law. Their reasoning is this. The Pharisees correctly stated that it is a commandment in the law of Moses to stone adulterers. The Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery to Yeshua. Yeshua did not stone her and told everyone else not to. Thus, God's law must no longer apply. Their supposed logical reasoning is founded on the fact that Yeshua stated, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Thus, the position is that anyone who has sinned cannot judge others. Most discerning biblical scholars understand why this cannot be a valid conclusion. The error in such an interpretation becomes quite obvious with only slight investment in study. Even most biblical scholars that are of the position that the whole word is still not true, because they subscribe to a law-abolishing paradigm, typically still prefer the more common supposed proof verses such as Galatians, Romans, or Colossians, etc. for their support. Yet because this text is sometimes still misunderstood, misapplied, and confuses others, John chapter 8 verses 1-12 through 12 should still be addressed. One major problem is with the core of the conclusion which is the understanding that we should not judge others. Scripture is clear that we are to judge others in matters of sin. Scripture even provides us with a three-step process. Number one, private. Number two, semi-private. And then three, public rejection. Not only that, Scripture is clear that we should want others to judge us according to God's law to help us expose our sin so that we can deal with it accordingly. In other words, friends don't let friends sin. In fact, by not judging others, we are in fact sinning ourselves. We should even judge ourselves to expose our own sin. Only by judging can we expose sin in ourselves first, and sin in others second. The only way to know them by their fruits is to discern and judge the fruit. Those who oppose this, even in the face of Scripture, usually focus on the often self-serving call for unity as the reason we should not judge. They have quickly forgotten that the body of Christ is to be united in believing and practicing truth, God's word, not united in what is false. We are to grow being edified in the truth and love. As Paul correctly stated, what fellowship can light have with darkness? If Yeshua is teaching that we should not judge others, then obeying such verses as Romans chapter 16 verses 17 through 18, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 17, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 5 through 6, 
And 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 is actually quite impossible. We are called to rebuke and correct. Who would want others living in sin? 2 Timothy chapter 3. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We are to embrace correction from others as it is for our benefit. Who would want to be living in sin? Proverbs chapter 10. He who keeps instruction is in the way of life, but he who refuses correction goes astray. Proverbs chapter 12. Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. Proverbs 15. Harsh discipline is for him who forsakes the way, and he who hates correction will die. Jeremiah chapter 5. O Yahweh, are not your eyes on the truth? You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to return. We are to correct in kindness and love and always based on the law of God as the only source of established truth. How much would we not love someone to not assist them in dealing with their own sin? Thus, the conclusion that Yeshua was teaching us in John chapter 8 to not judge others in sin is completely false. Such a teaching would actually damage the body of Christ if the body started tolerating it and ignoring sin. So it should be quite obvious to see why such an interpretation or conclusion of John chapter 8 is rendered scripturally invalid by even most biblical Christian scholars. That being said, how do we make sense of this story? The Pharisees and scribes accused a woman of breaking the law of God. Deuteronomy 22. If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die, the man that lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall put away the evil from Israel. Leviticus 20. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. In bringing the woman to Yeshua and referring to the law of Moses, they say, But what do you say? In other words, the Pharisees and scribes were attempting to trick Yeshua into doing something contrary to the law of God. This was their clear motive, for their motive is revealed to us. This, they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. So the question must be asked, if the Pharisees and scribes are correct in the fact that this woman committed adultery, and it is also clear to all that the law of Moses commands death, then how do they expect this to be a trap for Yeshua? What is missing? If Yeshua carried this sentence out, what would be their accusation against Yeshua? Supposedly, if Yeshua does not agree that she should be put to death, then Yeshua is teaching and practicing against the law of Moses. That would be defined as sin. 1 John 3, 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Obviously, that would place us in a very bad position as we would not have a perfect sacrifice to cover our sins. We know that Yeshua did not sin, so how was it that the woman was not put to death? Before we address that, we also have to consider another problem if Yeshua was teaching against the law of Moses. If such is the case, then Yeshua would fail the test of the Messiah provided in God's law, and he would be defined as a false prophet. 
Deuteronomy 13 and 18 are to be used to determine if a prophet was true or false. This was also the typical process in the first century. This is why the scribes tested Yeshua, because they were biblically commanded to. Any prophet that deviated from the law of Moses was considered a false prophet and also destroyed as prescribed by the law of Moses. Obviously, we know that this was not true of Yeshua, as he was a prophet like unto Moses. To answer this, we just need to understand the law of God well enough. We will find that Yeshua obviously did. The law of Moses also says, which the Pharisees conveniently did not bring up, Deuteronomy chapter 19, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on the account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. The Pharisees claim that the woman committed adultery, yet we see no evidence of any witnesses standing to condemn her. Thus, that is the trap that the Pharisees were attempting to set for Yeshua. That was their test. Though it is true that the woman should be stoned according to the law of Moses, that is not everything that needs to be considered in this matter. There are requirements and criteria that need to be presented to the courts to establish the matter. If there were not two to three witnesses to establish this sin, then there is no case to condemn her to death. In fact, if Yeshua would have carried out the punishment, it would have violated the law of Moses. It would have been murder, and he would not be a perfect sacrifice. Yeshua would have been just as guilty under the curse of the law as anyone else. If we recall from the story, Yeshua wrote something on the ground as soon as they asked him what he had to say. Why? After writing, he asked those without sin to stone her, implying that all there were sinning in their actions and intent at that very moment. Why? He then asks her, Has no one condemned you? Why is that the question? Was it the action of condemning her that was the sin he was referencing of those present? The only possible answer is that the biblical number of witnesses to stand to condemn her were not present. Deuteronomy 19 A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Thus Yeshua asks, Has no one condemned you? The fact of the matter is this. Yeshua did not fall for their trickery. If he would have participated in her stoning, then he would have fallen for their trap. He would have participated in a stoning that was not established by two to three witnesses. It would have been as law-breaking as the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7 when he was falsely accused of teaching against the law of Moses. The words of Deuteronomy 19.15 are likely what he wrote in the sand. It only makes sense for Yeshua to bring up the full transparency of the trap that the Pharisees were attempting to set. He exposed their test. The context of a need for witnesses to establish a matter even continues if we continue reading. What is interesting is that the Pharisees immediately tried to use what he wrote in the sand against him starting in verse 12. Yeshua demanded two to three witnesses to establish the matter of stoning according to the law of Moses, thus exposing the intent of sin of everyone present. Interestingly enough, the Pharisees turned it right back around and demanded two or three witnesses from Yeshua to establish his authority. John chapter 8. When Yeshua spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. 
Yet Yeshua has a response for them, again proving that he has the testimony of another witness, the Father. Again, the Pharisees not only failed to trick Yeshua into sinning once their trap was exposed, they also failed to try to use this same scripture against him. The Pharisees and scribes were certainly strategic in their lawless plot to trap Yeshua. But because Yeshua knew the law of God so well, he prevailed against their attempt at deception. On another note, it should be noted that some Christian biblical scholars question if this story was actually in the original book of John. The reason for such doubt is because this story does not exist in the four earliest known Greek manuscripts, nor does it exist in the Aramaic Peshitta documents. The story suddenly appears later in newer, more recent manuscripts. Though its validity cannot be said for certain, it's well known that its authenticity is certainly questioned in academic circles. So our study on this proceeded as though it is a true documentation of a true event. So why does God institute capital punishment? Capital punishment is designed to teach, govern, and even bless us. In scripture, those who refuse to walk in God's ways are said to have hearts of stone. It is quite the irony that God chooses to use stones to address such behavior in his established judicial system. One clear purpose of obedience to God's commandments is to bless us. When others begin practicing ways and traditions against the commandments of God, it begins to infect God's people with an anti-law behavior, or sin. Sin is bondage according to God's word, and it is God's desire that his people are not corrupted and living in sin. It is God's desire to purge extreme public sin from his body so that it does not corrupt the rest of the body and place others in the same bondage. In doing this, the capital punishment system places fear and attention back to God in his ways, while at the same time, removing individuals who have no desire to love God. God's ways are so good and such a blessing for his people that God cannot allow one person or a small group of people to negatively influence a whole body and thus cause them all to turn away from God. This is a case of God correcting a few to save the whole from traveling the same destructive path. This process is so effective that as long as leadership remained true to the biblical application of these commandments, then Israel as a whole body remained walking in his ways and stonings were unbelievably rare. The obvious historical problem is that Israel leadership often abandoned God's ways and thus the system did not work as intended. Thus in many instances, God's people still apostatized and were fractured and scattered. The atheist or agnostic sees this capital punishment process and cannot see the value in its design and purpose. The reason for this is that such critics see no value in God's commandments at all, so they fail to see why God should place such strict and profound measures of enforcement on his people. It's seen as barbaric, evil, and even unjust. Sadly, even many professing believers today fail to see how important God's law is for his people. If God did not believe his law was such a benefit for us, then there would have been no need for discipline and measures incorporated in his law to help sustain obedience to his law. The very fact that he incorporated such serious consequences when offenders abandon his law is a testimony to just how important God feels his law is for us and his love for us. God is not bad for enforcing and giving us his law. He is good for this. Here's how scripture defines the law of God. The law blesses and curses. It blesses us when we obey and we are cursed when we disobey. Deuteronomy chapter 11. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of Yahweh your God that I am giving you today. 
the curse if you disobey the commandments of Yahweh your God. Number two, the law defines sin. If we break the law of God, that is sin. If we observe the law of God, we stay out of sin. 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Number three, the law is perfect. Perfect means it cannot be made better. Perfect means that if you take any part of it away, it is no longer perfect. Number four, the law is liberty. It is freedom. Psalm 119 verses 44 through 45. So I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. That means if you walk in the law of God, you are free. Free from what? Free from the bondage of sin. Remember how Yeshua walked? He walked the law of God. Remember how Christ said to walk like he walked? That is why Christ is freedom. Remember, it is the truth that sets us free. What is truth? Number five, the law is truth. Psalm 119 verse 142 says it best. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Number six, the law is the way. Exodus 18.20 Teach them his decrees and instructions, and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. Number seven, the law is life. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 23 For this command is a lamp, this teaching is a light, and correction and instruction are the way to life. Number eight, the law is light. Proverbs 6, 23 for the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Number nine, the law is Yeshua, Jesus, the Word made flesh. So this is why we understand that Yeshua was perfect. He was freedom. He was the way. He was the truth. He was the life. He was the light. Revelation 19.13 He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Number 10. The law is for those who were once Gentiles, but now are grafted into Israel. Numbers 15, 15 through 16. One ordinance shall be for you of the assembly and for the stranger who dwells with you, an ordinance forever throughout your generations. As you are, so shall the stranger be before Yahweh. One law and one custom shall be for you and for the stranger who dwells with you. Number 11. The law is God's instructions on how to love God, how to love others, and how to not love yourself. 1 John chapter 5. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Perhaps it might be more clear as to why God is so interested in His people having the opportunity to know and live in God's ways. Anything that places such a benefit to God's people at risk is certainly a grave and serious matter, and requires grave and serious consequences. Anyone that sees God's law as unimportant is also going to see God's discipline on such matters as just too extreme. Thus, the problem is not God's established discipline, 
but our own personal or corporate inability to biblically understand the awesomeness and grand importance of His law for us. A Prophetic View of Stoning There is at least one more matter to consider on this subject of stoning and capital punishment. If one reviews all the commandments that merit the death penalty, one should quickly realize a pattern. All the commandments are strongly related to participating in serious spiritual adultery. When we sin, which is breaking God's law, God often equates it with going after other gods. Check it out in the Bible, and you'll see the relationship. They're basically one and the same. Deuteronomy 13 is a good example. If you are not following God's instructions, then you are following other God's instructions. Even if they are your own instructions, you are making yourself out to be God above the Most High God. You are raising your ways above God's ways. The reason for this is simple. If we obey and follow other ways that are not from God, there is only one other source of origin for those ways. If we elevate those ways above God's ways, we are in effect declaring with our heart and our behavior, regardless of what our mouth says, that God's ways are lesser than those ways. This is a form of idolatry and thus spiritually fornicating. This happened to God's people quite so often in the scriptures. The continuous cyclical pattern of obedience, apostatizing, and correcting His people is clear to anyone who's invested some time in studying His Word. So what does that mean to us? Well, as we know, there is nothing new under the sun. If that is the pattern in Scripture from the beginning, then that is the same pattern that exists today leading into the end. Isaiah 46.10 Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. Patterns in Scripture are meant to teach us truth, not to confuse us. When we examine the end times, we find that the whole purpose of the Great Tribulation is to lead God's people out of the Babylonian ways and back into God's ways. Two witnesses show up to teach us God's word to anyone who will listen. Angels fly overhead and proclaim the word to all the nations. At that time, everyone will have the opportunity to hear the whole truth and nothing but the truth for those who are willing to listen. There will be no more excuses, no more opportunity to be simply deceived. Lines will be drawn and everyone picks a side. We, as his people, either come out of her, Babylonian ways, or we share in her plagues. Revelation 18. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Also consider Hebrews 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 1 Peter 4 For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? All of this can be found in the prophets, Yeshua, and Paul's words and the book of Revelation. 
These are all things that one can study and prove for themselves. Here is the practical understanding as it relates to the issue of stoning. In the Great Tribulation, those who refused to repent and turn back to God in His ways, but still loved and mixed in Babylonian ways, even after such blatant correction and instruction, the stoning commandment then becomes all too real. Remember, it takes two or three witnesses to establish a matter, especially in matters of capital punishment. The two witnesses arrive and proclaim to the world that they should change their ways. Another witness, the third, comes from the three angels, who gives us the whole gospel to the whole world. Revelation 14, 6-7 Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. The same gospel Peter said we are to obey. The same gospel Peter declares as the whole word of God. 1 Peter 1 Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And just to make it clear, Peter says that the word is forever. Verse 25 But the word of Yahweh endures forever. Now is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. And the author of Hebrews says it was the same gospel at Sinai. Hebrews 4.2 For indeed the gospel was preached to us, as well as to them. But the word they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. And Christ is the word of God, and is the same today, yesterday, and forever. In the end, God tries to bring all his people back to the whole word of God by the two witnesses and three angels proclaiming the gospel. Sadly, many do not listen, and thus the two witnesses have no choice but to give their testimony to the judge when they are murdered and raised again. Remember, the two witnesses are indeed witnesses according to the Bible itself. They are going to establish a matter, and we are about to see what that might be. They stand as the evidence against the world and those continuing to mix God's ways with Babylonian ways. Right now we are afforded grace because we have been deceived and it is not blatant rebellion. It can only become blatant rebellion when we are presented the truth and refuse to listen to the truth. In the end times, the two witnesses completely remove the veil of such deceit, and what was once accidental sin becomes blatant rebellion to those who still refuse to repent by turning back to all of God's ways. They are in effect committing spiritual adultery and loving it. What a blessing it is to realize that so many are coming out of it today and sharing in the blessings of all of God's ways. The other more unfortunate reality is that God's wrath is poured out at some point in the end. Those still in Mystery Babylon are still afforded the chance to repent and turn back to the law of God and His truth. For those who do not turn back, but choose to remain in spiritual adultery, just as God's law, the Torah, dictates, the punishment is stoning by the whole city after the matter has been effectively judged. This is where it becomes interesting, yet also very sad. For this very reason, the last bowl of wrath in Revelation is when 100-pound hail stones rain down from everyone that has been caught up in the air, the whole city, to crush those who continue to commit adultery with Mystery Babylon. This is effectively defined as the winepress of God's wrath as these people are equated to the grape harvest in Israel. It is God stoning the world according to His own law, His Torah.
in order for a God to be declared righteous and holy, he uses his own standard, the law of God, as written down by Moses, to define righteousness and holiness. If God did not stone the world for adultery, then he would no longer be holy or righteous, whose own law requires it of him. Obviously, such a group is not good to be in. Test these things to the word and realize that the stoning commandments are not abolished in any capacity. In fact, the ultimate stoning is still coming right on schedule just as described because it is still God's law. If you are unfamiliar with Mystery Babylon, then consider learning about Babylonian ways and how you might actually be entertaining them in some of your traditions and practices. God asks us to rid ourselves of such ways and not worship him by mixing the devil's ways with God's ways. This is not intended to install fear into professing believers, but since we are on the topic of stoning, the reality that what is prophetically foretold will indeed happen. It is also a very serious matter. God is love, but he is also righteous. He is also holy. We need to understand, we need to study to show ourselves approved and work out our salvation with fear and trembling. God makes a very valid point in his word. If we really only love him, then it should only be his ways we should love, not the ways of his enemies. The evidence of our love for him is evidence in the ways we follow. Proverbs 28, 9. He who turns away his ear from hearing the law, Torah, even his prayer is an abomination. We hope that this study has blessed you. And remember, continue to test everything. Shalom. It is because of you, our generous supporters, who make it possible to offer these high-quality teachings completely free of charge. If you feel led to support 119 Ministries so that we can continue this effort, please visit testeverything.net and click on the Support 119 tab. Learn how you can partner with us to take the whole Word of God to the nations.